Your name's not Dan, you're not coming in. Hello and welcome to another edition of Raw, the 90s rave podcast with me, Tom Latcham. Uh, if you're watching on video, hope you like my fancy blue lights. Uh, as you can see, over the uh, over the weeks, my loft is slightly improving and, and eventually one day, hopefully, it won't look like shit, but that's a dream we've got anyway. Uh, right, you know, uh, if you've been watching Raw over the past however long, that we're all about bringing you the human interest stories of those who created the 90s rave scene and they really don't come much more amazing or inspiring than this one today. Uh, old school ravers might remember the name DJ Footloose from Jungle Raves back in the 90s or his own shows on Cool FM and One Extra. But what most of you likely won't know is that Footloose, a.k.a. Mark Robinson, has had one seriously fascinating life, which he admits could have ended in jail time, having left school with no GCSEs and been in trouble with the law in his teens. However, rather than pursuing a career which would have seen him regularly stand in front of a judge and jury, Mark decided instead to pursue a career which regularly sees him stand in front of a judge and jury. Hold on, there's something... Oh, yeah, with a wig on. That's right. Well, let's find out more about Mark's incredible uplifting story and how he went from bad boy to barrister from the man himself. Hello, mate. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're welcome. And thanks for, for, for joining us. I, I read this story. I think DJ Ron um, put something out on his Instagram about you because you're old pals. And I just thought, wow, that's amazing. But... What Ron put on on his Instagram, I've since discovered from talking to you, barely touches the site. So uh, we're going to get into this and we're going to find out a bit about you. I mean, look how smart you are. You must be the smartest man from the 90s rave scene. <laughs> well, actually, I'm, uh, I'm getting ready to do a trial in about a couple of hours, so that's why. <laughs> right, well, that's, it's good. At least yeah, you're, not, yeah. uh, you're not wearing your old brave gear, because uh, that yeah. might not be... But we'll come on to that sort of thing. At least I'm bit. not wearing a wig. <laughs> well, that's true. I, it would have been nice. I would have loved to have seen you in a wig. Just just rock up on screen in this wig. Um, uh, Mark, let's go right back to the start, because while we are uh, interested in your 90s rave years and your subsequent legal career, your early years growing up in East London are what make your life story all the more fascinating, because you did have a, a, a tough start to life. Tell us. Yeah, so... Um raised or born in mid 70s 1975 um i was physically abused as a child my arm and leg was broken by my natural mother i ended up in um foster care from three months old then i ended up being adopted when i was six um had a kind of rough childhood in forest gate um lots of problems in school lots of um bullying um, i was academically totally inept totally useless uh you know probably didn't even know one end of a pen or a pencil than the other um and i ended up leaving school with um no gcses i think I, I i was entered for maths and i got an f in it so there you go f for failure and therefore also went on to be footloose but that's an, another <laughs> story so um, as you do when you're academically failing. And I, I think I, I got excluded from one school and didn't go back. And then I went to another school and things didn't get any better. But I ended up getting involved in a lot of the wrong crowd. I had a load of, um, I call them losers, a lot of um, negative people around me when I was younger. And, um, you know, got involved in lots of um, bad things. I think, judging by today's standards... I'd say it was more antisocial behaviour, but there was no such thing as Asbos back then. So um, always in trouble, got arrested an awful lot. But th those times, um, you used to end up with a caution, to be honest with you. I think it was only in 1991, as I recall, I um, got nicked for theft of a bike, which, uh, honest, I didn't do it. It was a friend. Um, hadn't, and um, But they thought that I did it and um, 
got pulled in front of the youth court in um, Barkingside and then I got put on a probation order. And that was kind of some kind of turning point. Um, I think... Can I go back a, a step? Because yeah. I'm interested to know what your what your family uh, upbringing gave you in terms of your uh, your current personality and your drive and how you got there. Um, I'm interested. So you were you were placed in in foster care very early mm. doors. I, did you remain in touch with your biological biological family, or have they they're not involved uh, in? I did get in touch in later life, but in uh, in the initial time, social services wasn't a fan. I mean, if you know anything about the, the, so, the, the social services in the 1970s, they placed me with a, a, a white family, which was the norm right. back then, right. which which um, was presenting a whole host of other cultural problems, uh, albeit that my, my godmothers and most of my friends, because the area I lived in, were, were black. So um there was balance but still had problems um i'm i wouldn't really say that i had the best of relationship at times with them either so i i kind of found my old own way and um unfortunately i think many people kind of took advantage of my situation while i was trying to find my way hence i ended up in so much trouble in my formative years. Yeah, well, well, you really were in gangs, weren't you? And I'll come on to that in a sec. But (laughs) in terms of your musicality, were you always into music? Because you eventually became a DJ, but were you always a a musical kid? Or was there any interest at all when you were growing up? Well, I used to play drums, funny enough. uh, I always gravitated towards rhythm. And I I I was gifted a snare drum in 1987. And I used to like a bit of jazz. And then I played along. And then the snare grew into a full kit. And I had varied taste. I mean, I'd listen to from Public Enemy to Bob Marley to... 80s pop bands such as Level 42. I, I liked uh, some jazz, and I, I was into Adam and the Ants. Oh God, am I really telling you this? But, um, <laughs> what it, what everything that attracted me to any group was always the drummer. Yes, and I know so that I, 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 I kind of ignored the rest of the music and the lyrics, and I was always focused on the beat. Now, what happened? Um, I think. When I moved, the family moved to Ilford in 1990, and I got in more trouble there. But I met some friends who knew a local DJ called um, Devious D, old Adrian Davis, speaking about it was his birthday the other day, his big 50, and um, went out to a couple of clubs. I think one was someplace, the Loft in High Wycombe, and... um, another club, Tasco Warehouse, when it just opened in Plumstead. And I know a lot of you rave guys remember oh, some great raves there, like Telepathy, Utopia. Uh, but I think, and I was 16 years old at the time, and I took my first pill. <laughs> it was a New Yorker. I was off my nuts. And um, and it was a great time. It was a great night out. And then um, a few days later, my, my friend um, from Ilford, he, he, he brought me out to, um, I think it was telepathy on, on New Year's Eve in um, Dawson. Um, I, I can't remember the, uh, was it uh, Cole Ashford Street? It was mm-hmm. around the back of Dawson. I, I, I recall that. And um, again, it was, I think Ashford Street, yeah. And it, and it was a good warehouse event. I, didn't, I was drug free that night, I'm pleased to say. Maybe I smoked a spliff, and then um, I didn't go out in, again into that music for some time. Um, but I used to listen to Defected. I mean, you know, it was Defected. It was Rush, um, and then moving on to 
summer of 1992, I just started to drive my first car. And the local bad boy, which was, he was a bad boy, but in the end, he was really quite nice to me. And he um, saw me driving and he said, look, you're going to come out with me tonight or else. And he did it in a kind of semi-joking way, but I had nothing going on anyway. And he invited me along. We went to Tasco Warehouse again, and it was Utopia. It was a night I'll never will. I forget a lot of it, but then I'll never forget. <laughs> and, I, know um, the, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, he gave me he gave me um, another ecstasy tablet, and and it was had a profound effect on me because I was just like in the zone, gurning, doing all this and, and the dances. I didn't have white gloves or glow sticks, and I've never engaged in such things. But um, it changed my life. It changed my perspective. Before that, I was into the reggae scene and I'd um, had an altercation outside a club in Hackney Faces where I went to try to, there, there was some gang warfare, not even gangs, it was area versus area, Forestgate versus Hackney. My younger brother had gone up there and I'd gone there to try and rescue him. And then I ended up getting slightly cut in the face with a bottle, nothing major, but it could have been a lot worse if I'd not drive, dragged him into the car, drive off at speed. However, um, that put me off of the, the reggae events. I was like, I've, I'm done with this. So the timing was good because when I went into that rave, I saw for the first time there was black, there was white, there was Asian people, and everybody was together as one. And colour didn't matter. And you'd have bits of all different amalgamation of music, whether it was reggae or um, hip-hop or um, some pop or a bit of classical. Everything was mixed in with a beat that was like 145, 150 BPM. And everyone bloody loved it. And everyone <laughs> was hugging you. And I'd never experienced this before. Um, and and I was like, wow. And some of the DJs, I mean, I didn't know too much about the technicalities of DJing, but I heard a lot of mist- what I believe to be a lot of mistakes. Um, from, and so I thought, you know, that's my attitude to life that I could probably do better than them. So <laughs> after that rave finished, uh, I um, badgered my parents for some money for decks. Um, and um, I bought some cheap turntables from some shop in Wolfhamstow Village. Um, and they, were, they weren't even, they were worse than Citronics. Remember the old um, belt drive Citronic decks? Yep. They were worse than that. They had, they didn't even have the proper pitch control up and down <laughs> like a Technics. But you know what? I learnt my craft on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I but if you can do it on them, Mark, you yeah. can probably probably do it on any of the uh, crappy setups that you would get in the clubs back then. Um, in terms of the racing, you know, you said that you went from reggae nights where you were seeing violence to this other night where there's no violence and lots of belonging, isn't there? You know, that's what that's what the '90s rave scene was famous for. You were previously in gangs before that, and were you sort of given your uh your your tough upbringing where you were put into care quite early on and then adopted you didn't have a normal family upbringing do you think that you were seeking some kind of family feel or community feel in all you were doing whether that was gangs then whether then that was the rave scene a little bit later um i'd say yes definitely all for it but um obviously because the culture reason i was definitely seeking acceptance and i saw it in the wrong way from entirely the wrong people you say gangs i mean i i'd say a lot of them were a bunch of dickheads to be honest with you I, I, <laughs> like do you know what i mean like the, you know we it wasn't serious it was anti-social behavior okay. there was no i wouldn't say it was organized crime it was more um maybe there was the odd 
there might have been your street robbery, but more often than not, it was pulling um, alarms on trains, stopping the red button on escalators, um, you know, generally making a mess out of the local being, McDonald's. Being, being, around a, of, being a, a teenage lad, I suppose. But I, yeah. but I guess that if left unchecked mm. and you get your first criminal record, this then becomes a, a more of a way of life. And that was a, a real danger. Yeah, yeah it, it, it was. And again, that... that um, when I put on probation, um, that really changed my things. And I, I, I tried to make the effort. I mean, just before I bought the, um, well, I'd bought my decks and, um, that in between, before that time, they put me on this, remember the old YTS youth training scheme? Mm-hmm. Um, they put me on a, a course in a, as a, in a joinery and that, jo- and, and it was carpentry. And I stuck it out for two weeks and I couldn't take it anymore. And literally I went up to the, the head of, of the actual school in, in um, I think Warren street. And I said, look, this is not for me. I want to be a DJ. So he said, all right, sign me off. I got my weeks 35 pounds. He's getting back in a week. And then I never looked back to be honest with you. And I spent every penny I had on music and I just put, you know, I just practice, practice. And I think I practiced religiously every, nearly every single day for about three years. Even though I was playing, I, I really wanted to be master the art and become mixed perfect. And I think by about 94, 95, I achieved it where I could play a set anywhere and not even drop a mix. Wow. Fantastic. And um, could you... I'm interested to know about the probation that, that changed your life, that moved you and made you realise, look, I don't want to be involved in this crowd anymore. Um, what did the probation officer, do you remember what the probation officer said to you uh, around that time that made you change the, your path in life? Uh, well, look, she, back then, the criminal justice system, um, a lot of people that worked in it, it's, not, it's very diverse now, full of black, Asian people of all walks of life. Back then, it, it was still um, majority white run, and the probation officer was a, a black woman from, um, from Jamaican heritage, and she just spoke to me culturally, and she became more of um, a friend and a mentor than a probation officer. So it wasn't really punishment. I'd sit down with her every week, tell her my troubles and strifes, and she was just an ear that I could actually talk to, express myself. I wasn't judged. I could speak candidly and open to her. And she kind of took the time to understand me when most people didn't. Was she the first person... Was she the first person that had shown any real belief in you? Because I imagine that your teachers probably felt "Mm, he's not going to go and achieve much because he's, you know, he doesn't know one end of a pen from the other, as you said earlier. Yes, I think she was the first person that listened to me and and actually maybe took me seriously. How did that make you feel? Made me change at that point. (laughs) I weren't out of the woods just yet by any means. (laughs) It it was still, I mean, I still had about another um, 30 years to fix up in front of me, but there you go. Well, I mean, actually, was it the, uh, was seeing a... A, a black probation officer in a largely white industry, I suppose you'd call it, you know, area of, of, of public life. Was that, although you might not at that point have gone, I'm going to go and be a barrister, of course, that came later. Do you think that sort of made you, gave you a feeling that I, this needs to change and later and latterly you became part of that change? Um, not really. I think I listened to her, I, and it's not that I think culturally we connected. But what it was, it wasn't the fact that she was back. It was just culturally, without 
gang in the kind of thing. I think that she just listened to me, took me through how it was, gave me an ear, at her ear, and then made me understand what I could achieve. I think that was it up until that point. Honestly, I don't think people listened to me. I was just dismissed for whatever reason. You know, some of my behaviour was, I'd say, somewhat weird when I was younger, off-key, strange. Obviously, I've had a few mental health diagnoses since then, which... I'd go and tell me that I've been diagnosed with bipolar. I have dyspraxia. All these things are somewhere. They're all on the neurodiversity spectrum of mental health. So, you, you know, you could have ADHD at one hand and there's autism. It's all the kind of same spectrum. So people just saw me and I don't know, they saw full. I don't know what they saw, but no one ever bothered to scratch the surface or ask certain questions about how are you? What's really going on in your home life? How do you feel? Those things were ignored. I find and, that uh, remarkable, given that you were mm. you were. I remember the seventies. Are things different now? I mean, maybe in the seventies, yes. being put into care was you know you were just you just you were just put into care and sort of forgotten about. Have yeah. things improved now? I mean, I've, that sounds bonkers that that happened. I mean, yeah, yeah, things have improved. One, I mean, they generally they don't put black people with white families, and two, they spit up me and my older brother, and right. they would never, they would, and he's he's less than a year older than me. Right. Like he's I'm March the first, he's March the sixth. They would never split up siblings now. No way, absolutely, it just it would not happen. And they did that without care. They, they, the social services had no regard for for me and my brother's welfare, and they just dumped us in white families. I mean, my my older brother, he suffered some um, horrific racist abuse from the family that they that, that they put him with. I, I didn't have that, but still, the fact is, is that you're putting us with families where where there's no cultural connection. And I think th- this is the seventies now. We've become a lot more diverse in the inclusive society. So I'd like to think that even if a black child was with a white family now mm. culturally we all know each other a lot better than, than we maybe did like 40 50 years ago do you, do you understand we're a lot more connected in society we've, we've out, through our work through our friendships through school we've got a lot more diverse friends than we would have ever had back then and in terms of your DJing, it sounds like you just uh, you you grabbed it and you ran with it it was like i'm gonna do this i mean we've all had the thought where we're like mm. i'm gonna be a dj now but you obviously, no, the majority of us don't do it. You know, we don't act upon it. You did. What do you think was in your personality or in your background, your family life that gave you that drive to go, nah, I'm doing this? Uh, it was the pill, mate. <laughs> I can't even front me. It was the pill. I don't know what was in that. I think it was a New Yorker. And I'll t- tell you what. Yeah, that was it. Do you, do you remember who was on DJing? Was there anyone notable that was on DJing? Uh, like, I'm going to either be inspired by them or I'm going to be better than them. No, I think, from if I can remember, I think Davis D and Randall played, and I definitely didn't think I'd be better than them. But there were some other people <laughs> that I, I, I can't remember their names that I shan't, and I shan't name. <laughs> and I thought, fair enough. But um, um, in terms of that, the bills, you usually always catch Randall Deviously and, and you know, the music, the, the anthems. I mean, this is when Johnny L Hurt You Soul just came out. So the whole night, every DJ played Hurt You Soul. I remember that. And it was hands in the air, you know, when the, the drop, the rewind bit and the drop comes in. Dun, 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 dun. And then I think you had the Saturn Storm tune, Let's Get Together, coming out. Let's get together. 
horn track. All those anthems and it was the strobe lights. I mean, you know, if I could go back to it, one of those nights, oh, it, it was it was a it was well, an amazing we, time. I think we all feel the same, and that's why this podcast has been so popular. Um, what, why did you choose the name Footloose? Where did that come from? All right, so I have a disposition of having some rather large feet. Now I've grown into my feet. I'm six foot plus. Um, about back then, I was about five foot whatever, and I had size 11, 12 feet. So my nickname was Bigfoot, which was then turned to Footsie. Now, uh, obviously, I didn't want people really that like people from school knowing that I was a DJ, D, DJ I, you know, I, I, and I felt, and I think one, um, because, you know, I was put in school, I wasn't confident. And also the fact is, is that a lot of my school was, majority of my friends were black and they frowned on, um, hardcore acid music. There was a thing back then. It, it, it was very ridiculous, but it was devil music. It was I, I, not my word. Their words, not mine. The white yeah, yeah. man music, and I, I actually loved it. I didn't really care what they had to say, but I gravitated towards it. And they were all like, you know, reggae is the thing. You're going to sell out if you go to this music. And the, you know, the biggest joke is two years later, these same people were begging oh, me for guest list to go to Jungle Call of Fame. So, and, then, and then the same thing happened. They used to, um, you know, say, and again, their words, not mine. They said that um, garage music was, was homosexual music. I shouldn't be playing it. And I loved it. I ignored what they said. I loved the music. I, I you know, I'm not homophobic. I, I, no. I embraced the music. And, and then two years later, oh, can we get guests to go to the garage rave with you, please? So, you know, I'm, I'm saying a, a lot of people from the past were late musically, but I think credit to myself, I was ahead of the curve. Well, yeah, and, and what, was it, what was it about, I mean, you might just repeat and say it was the pill, but, but what was it about <laughs> your personality that, that drew you to that rave scene? Or was it just that pill? Um, it was, but it was the mix, or it was the the eclectic mix of people, the diversity. No one was at each other's throats. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'd be going to a reggae rave and people would be getting shot and stabbed. I'd be going to um, a, a, um, a hardcore rave and someone would, that you don't know would come up and hug you. And and you've got to understand, back then, we're, we're just coming out of the 80s, the mu- musical scenes, people were very, like, very much still... Um, well, it's, you didn't really have segregation. I mean, we've always, if you live in London, even going back to the 70s, there was always black, white and Asian neighbours. I've never lived on a street where I've known anything different. But musically, everyone had very different tastes in music. And and you'd very seldom see a white person going to a reggae dance. And, you you know, you, you might not see um, a black person going to another particular kind of club. But whatever was in this hard coffee, it brought the people together. And for that reason, I embraced it because it was something new. It was something special. It was, and, and, and I, and I don't know, there was a lot of love there, man. And that, that's what, that all of those factors, that's what I liked. And obviously the music was absolutely wicked. Yeah, you know? of course. And, and the pills. <laughs> yes, indeed. It goes what I say. Um, and what was um, your your chosen style of of tunes and of DJing? What, what were the sort of DJs that you? I mean, Randall and DBSD you've mentioned, but were there others that you that you modelled yourself on? Perhaps that you went, you know, I love their style. I'm going to like go down that sort of route. Oh well, look, 100. Um, percent That's an easy one to answer. After '93, I heard Randall. Must have been Wax Club. 
And then I followed him ever since there. I think jungle drum and bass through the nineties, there was, there's no one better than Randall. Like it's, 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 you know, I think everyone, all my friends, everyone modeled themselves on Randall. I mean, his mixing, those long mixes where he used to roll it out. Technically there was, there was no one better. I mean, I say Bookham was better, but he just didn't play in the plate. Um, not was us. I wouldn't say Bookham was better. He was just as good, but he didn't play in the places that that Randall would play. So I think Randall, his, his choice for selection was brilliant. But, you know, I really enjoyed Abel. And I did like the others. I mean, I liked um, Mickey was great. Mickey's Finn had an amazing selection of music. Um, Kenny Ken um, was good. You know, Gashay, Darren J, they all held it down. But for me, Randall was my standout what choice. Was it, what was it? Was it was it the tune selection or was it the, the mixing that did it for you? Both. I mean, Randall, when he used to play that VIP drums that he carried on playing, it was his selection, you know, all that moving shadow stuff in the night is like the Omni Trio, Renegade Snares, the Nookie remix of, was it Burning Up? Like, you know, the guy was out of this world. Like, he's literally played sets in Able that brought me to tears. The guy was that good. He was he was on another planet. Um, and so it was good. But I'll tell you who else I, I rate, but I didn't really appreciate him as much because he did play in London and that was the thing I didn't hear him was ratty. Yes, he was mixing on, yes, I, I, I yes, love the basement stuff, all that f- basement feel, all that basement stuff. I love. So ratty again, yes, yeah. um, he's amazing DJ, technically gifted, technically flawless. And again, I, 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 I if I could play a lot of the stuff that ratty did, and, and 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 you couldn't get away with that in London, I, I would have done. And I, and I was heavily into him. So I'd say Randall, Ray, LTJ Bookham, you know what I mean? Uh, are my all time Hall of Fame legendary heroes, definitely. Well, we hope you're enjoying today's episode of Raw, but now's where we ask you inevitably for your help to keep this project rolling on. We're a tight-knit team of four working part-time for free, taking no wages at this project to create this podcast, and it's quite a serious undertaking alongside our normal day jobs. Hopefully you can see from our progression from audio to video in the few months since we started this podcast that, thanks to your ongoing donations, we've managed to improve our equipment. And I'm pleased to say your generosity means this podcast now washes its own face in terms of costs, which is absolutely great news. And thank you, thank you, thank you so much to any of you who've donated. Uh, We've got big, big plans for the future, but we aren't going to be able to do it without your support. So if you want us to keep making Raw, you're going to need to keep on funding Raw. And that will help with the cost of renting or buying recording kit and paying expenses to travel the country and interview more of your favourite rave artists from the 90s. So if you can spare anything at all, no matter how big or how small, you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. That URL again is gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. And if you're not in a position to donate, because we know it's a tough time for everybody, you can instead help by subscribing and sharing our content on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You just need to search for Raw, the 90s rave podcast. Go and do that now, please. Massive love and respect to each and every one of you. Hope you're enjoying it. So, Mark, uh, or aka DJ Footloose, for those who know you as that, uh, it didn't take long for you to take up DJing before you were DJing on Cool FM, which at the time was London's leading jungle drummer based pirate radio station. How did that come about? All right. So, um, 
that's a funny story. So more of the woes and grow um, of growing up in my area. So people didn't really take me seriously, which is why I was so reluctant to let people know that I was a DJ. So I gave a demo tape to Weekend Rush, and I think they put it in the bin. I think I'm actually having to call him out. It was Red Ant. He threw it away. <laughs> I mean, it was Redrins now, but yeah, it was... Um, yeah, that, that's how people were to me. I'm, I'm afraid back then. So he threw it away, and I don't think it's just. I, I think it's just still now. I think it still goes it, on now. I don't think it's. Yeah, it, I so, don't think it's been eradicated. <laughs> so I, I sent, I sent another tape to Call FM, and I got a phone call from Smurf, and and this is true fact. He said we've listened to about forty tapes. Yours was absolutely the best, and we'd like to offer you mm. a show. And it was only, um, I think, five to seven in the morning, but I, I embraced it with open hands. I took it, and I was on um, Saturday night, Sunday morning, and I did that show for a couple of years, but I just built myself off of there. And what happened, Rush was the station in 92, because they had very, some of the young people that owned the station had various personal issues. Um the station went downhill, they collapsed. And then Call FM with Jungle Fever and all that, we went vroom. In 93, we took over everything. Yeah, Brocky was the man. And then we had a lot of those weekend rush people. I mean, Flirt joined, Esso joined and all. I used to call them the Rush FM rejects because they all came over <laughs> to, to the station. And, it, it, you know, so for, for me, it was, um, I think that was the right move. Red Ant, Red Ant did the biggest favour mm. of my career. Because and for all, those, go on, Karen, go on, Mark. I was saying all of my, a lot of friends from school, they were all on Russia from, you know, there was um, Ricochet, there was Brox and Spanner. And these people, Dave and D, they've stopped DJing about 20 odd years ago, but it was just me that they had a problem with. But hey, you know what? It worked out in the end, didn't it? You didn't. Well, it did for you. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so um, what does being, or certainly what did being on pirate radio do for a career, your career, generally, uh, a career uh, in the 90s road scene? I mean, how important was it for your latter successes as a DJ? Um, incredibly. I mean, just the sheer dent of being in such a leading station, you got access to a lot of music you wouldn't have got access to. Obviously, getting to play at Jungle Fever and getting other bookings because Call FM was such a big brand, so instrumental, inextricably linked to the rise of Jungle in, in the 90s that, you know, if you were on Call FM, people just wanted to book you. So no matter what level you were on, and I think that it propelled people like the Brockies and the Dets into jungle superstar status at the time. But just the fact of being there, I mean, we had, I used to go there most days, hang around there. And then um, Eastman, Phil, he got the shop and um, up, was it, um, top of Leebridge Road, um, Upper Clapton Road. And again, it was, it was doing well. So... It, it was really, really important, I think. I, I don't, again, it was a, an incredible, important stepping stone. And for those who've never been in a pirate radio studio, and they don't really exist anymore because they're all largely either online or they've gone on to DAB, uh, actual legal radios. But for those who've never been in a pirate radio station back in those days in the early 90s, tell us about the setup. You know, were you having to climb up like high rises to get the transmitter, you know, leaning out of windows and all that sort of stuff? Were you getting raided? Uh, I, I didn't. I didn't do none of the climbing. There was a team Smurf <laughs> and some other guys, but um, 
it was some grungy places. I mean, one time there was a mouse in the studio and um, D, it was me and DJ Trace did a back-to-back show and I jumped on his back because I, I have a phobia of mice and rats. I'm, <laughs> I'm absolutely petrified. Like, you know, I can face any most things, but g- give me a mouse or a rat and, you know, I mean, I just, I, I can't even get the words out for it. But Were they, were they but, like squats, basically? It was some dingy dive studio um, apartments. But in terms of equipment, we used to have, you know, the old motor rollers? That was the phone. And um, I think the number was 08506060962. I'm sure I can remember. Someone might actually, um, I stand to be corrected on that. (laughs) But um, the deck, you had your techniques, which were usually needed a bit of um, the old oil on there to to lubricate the actual pitch control. But they weren't too bad. Um, and then you had the famous, if you know anything about DJing in the 90s, there was one mixer used, the MRT60. And so we, ha- we had them, and that was um, the equipment. But I did get raided. I, 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 um, if you recall, I said I started playing Garage towards the, the late 90s from about 96, 97. And I, funny enough, I was simultaneously did two shows, one on Call of Fame and one on Deja Vu, because I was heavily into Garage and I did quite reasonably well in the Garage scene. And um, my record, I got raided by DTI and on, on Deja Vu in effect 98, and they took my records. And the oh. reason, reason I didn't get arrested is because um, I said, look, I was just here with Footloose and he's just left me here. I don't know. I, mean, I can't believe it. And they said, don't worry, mate. It's not your fault. We're taking all of the stuff. And I had to sit there pretending not to be me when they took my shoes. I was like, no. That's a great story. Uh, I, I was like, uh, I was, uh, but I, I, you know, they put a shout out throughout the scene. And I've got to say with the garage DJs in the shops, they all came and gave me my tunes back. I didn't, I got a lot of stuff back for free. All right. And I, I was not everything I got back. I got everything back over time, but I got a lot of tunes back and people really clubbed together, like some of the bigger name DJs on other pirate radios, wow. Freak nice. FM and all that. And so they really helped me out because I was the only one it happened to. And I lost right. a whole bloody big box of tunes with dubs, like, <laughs> but I didn't end up in court over it on that occasion. Well, that's useful. Uh, and but to be honest, by the sounds of what we're about to go on to, it wouldn't have been the end of the world anyway. You'd have got yourself off. Um, so, um, but before we come to that, you you were actually you know it, it got you some big gigs, didn't it? Playing on pirate radios, you played all around the world. Yeah, I did. Um, that basically um, with the cooler film thing. I was I went to I think me and Brocky played at some gig in it was it might have been terminals back in about 1997 and to be honest my career was kind of flat then i'd play out a couple of times a month and it it was all right but what nothing was um, i think nothing was going to and i did get bits of garage here and there but nothing was really firing definitely not drum and bass wise but this american pop promoter um, name of brian came over from seattle on holiday and he gave me his card and said would you like to play in states and so he contacted me again uh, a few um, in the beginning of 1998 and he booked a whole tour and um, he brought me and Skibbity out to um, the first place was Seattle. Then I played in, I think, LA. Then I did San Francisco. Then I went up to wow, Vancouver. Then I finished off in Philadelphia. And then the promoters and people liked me so much that I was going out there four times a year. Really? And I think I've done all of the cities I've just mentioned, plus I've done... Um, New York, um, I think I did. A, I might have done my music conference. I think um, I've done Des Moines in Iowa, Minneapolis, 
um, St. Paul's, um, Toronto, big festival there, San Bernardino Valley, um, so inner LA, um, Hollywood, um, Santa Monica, and Santa Monica, the pink was one of my favorite venues. And, you know, I mean, I'd be playing to these guys, like 300 people and I'd play and I'd get a standing ovation Wicked. after I've played. And I was doing that. And the funny thing was I was doing a load of everything started to pick up. So I'd be doing garage as well. So I literally, I'd get on a plane, cut them playing States for a weekend, get straight off the plane, do the Sunday circuit garage scene without even sleeping. And, and the gigs went through the roof. So I, cause I'd be doing jungle this minute, and garage, and I, I think I was the only person that was actually doing something like that. But it kept me busy, kept me motivated. Um, That's interesting. Is it, did you never? Did it never cause a problem being divided between two scenes in that way? I just, you know, some people made their comments, but I didn't really give a monkey's what they thought, to be honest with you. So I like Cool FM um, started to, when we did the Jungle Fevers, they started to put Garage into Arena 3. And I remember I, I used to book the Garage room for Eastman. And one time we booked EZ, it was me, and Mickey Finn played Garage as well. Now, see, what a lot of people don't know is a lot of the those DJs used to play garage and house. So Ryder used to play garage and house. He played, used to play garage in room two in roast. Bookham used to play house in room two. Mickey's done it. Um, Frost plays garage and house. I've seen Frost. I've booked Frost for house sets. Um, And so it was was not as unique as people think it is, but obviously people's main bread and butter is their main music because I don't think I was as big a name as some of the others, I was able to play as I as I pleased, and I, I enjoyed doing it. You know, I have no regrets. Have I you ever played the wrong set? <laughs> nah, mate. And you, and, you, and you know why I didn't do that is because I actually um, used to. I'd carry all both sets of records. So that never happened. But I'll tell you another fun, funny story. There was um, one of Mickey and Finn and Darren Jay's mates who was friends with Charlie Craze, famous, infamous Craze Cody. And we, we were booked to play in the Coldenly Prison, which is an open prison. And it was me, Mickey Finn and Darren Jay we played there. Now, I am... Darren Jay played reggae. I can't believe you played in a prison. <laughs> yeah. I asked Mickey Finn if you see him or Darren Jay. I, play, I played reggae. Um, Mickey Finn played garage and I emceed for Mickey Finn. And I was going, Mickey Finn, Mickey Finn. And, and uh, Mickey, Mickey played a bad boy set of Garage, by the way. And um, I've actually got the, the tape somewhere. I think I'll put that up online. Oh, um, you should. That'd be fantastic. Fact, there's even a set of um, DVD at um, Hearn Bay in 1991. I think it's Reincarnation. And if you listen to it, that was me emceeing for him. Oh, really? Yeah, because so I went out You could have been a successful... Were you any good or were you, just, were you not really? <laughs> no, no, look... Back then, you just needed the hype, man. Ooh, but M- an, an image of an MC usually back then was a black guy in a baseball cap just going, come on, come on, we're coming on strong. And so it was really easy to do. You didn't, the, the, the lyricists like the Skibbities and, and those kind of guys came later on. Back then, all you had to shout is, come on, re- what even rewinds? But it was, it was quite straightforward. You're more of a hype, man. And so... Right. Lyrical content really improved with the Shabbers and the yeah, Skibbities yeah. and the Stevie Hyperdees further down the line. But you could have been an MC? No? Nah, I like music too much. Okay, fair enough. Um, but you did eventually go on to use your vocal dexterity as a radio presenter, not just on, on Cool FM, but more on, on One Extra, which is really much, you know, huge, really prominent. Um, and you've got a record deal. You released an album with Ministry of Sounds. and all, I mean, really high-achieving. 
Yeah, it was. A mini, um, with um, the actual um, BBC thing, that, that was another funny thing. That was in 2007. And they, I did a pilot show, funny enough, for them. And I was in my early 30s, and they did tests um, pilots of various other um, DJs, such as myself, Super D, and these guys. And... Um, we all did the show. It all went out on a Sunday morning, early hour Sunday morning. They said my show was really good, but I'm kind of too old. I'm 32. They're looking for more younger <laughs> DJ. So put all age, dis- age discrimination. But anyway. <laughs> also, that 32 is somehow old. How depressing. Oh, I tell, oh, I'm nearly 46. So how do you make that? <laughs> figure that one out. But what happened? Um, it was um, an August. I was in my f- old flat in East London. And what happened then is... Um, they actually, um, for, the head producer phoned me up and um, she she said, right, I've heard your show and it was really good. I'm really quite impressed. You were one of the best. And I'd like to offer you a contract. I, need, I had to sit down. I nearly killed over. And th- then I went into training for um, eight weeks of, of training and um, with them. And I had to do, it wasn't elocution lessons, but I had to learn how to speak properly which kind of set the path for me my current career um i had to learn how to announce the death of a member of the royal family um and and it was it was very very good and then i started in september 2007 and was with bbc for three years off the back of that i was then given all these commercial gigs i I got into more into the production because i I just produced a tune just leave just before i got into bbc there's something i can't have noticing really rather well in the underground scene that was number one in the bbc one extra charts um some good royalty money i got off of that and um that kind of propelled me and then i was getting all these remixes with verge sony emi i did the david greta check sexy um chick remix which got to number two in the charts my remix package was included in the actual package caliochi for um pitbull which was um so david was actually number one i should say and caliochi pitbull was number two and i did that and then um, my remix got on now dance hits and you know now now hits so my my mix got on there in australia and i I did some stuff for Cheryl Cole and loads of remixes and it, it and then we did the album for Ministry of Sound and I was kind of key to putting that all together and I got Super D and Pioneer to do it with me and it was the Sounds of UK Funky and I got to number 24 in the album charts so we was doing really good yeah you were doing really well but about a year or so later in 2013 um you, I think maybe it was 2012, but you hosted some events as well. But one event led you to, to to hang up your headphones and retire. Tell us what went down and why you decided to do that when things were seemingly going so well for you. All right. So I, after I left one extra, um, I just got back more into the promotions and DJing at my own events. And it was good. I had a really, really good following. But what happened on a particular night in 2012, which will stay with me for the rest of my life, um, my friend whose birthday at party I put on for him and hosted it for him, um, another idiot that was um, our friend, had a knife on him, got into an argument with someone else, went to stab someone else, and then he ended up stabbing my friend in the heart. And, um, yeah, he, he lost his life. He was taken away by a helicopter. Um, I mean, look, we were, I had to give evidence um, at the trial as a prosecution witness, and it wasn't nice, wasn't pleasant. No. And But 
after that, I just thought, you know, I can't be bothered anymore. I mean, one, to be clear, um, I was, my love for the music industry was waning. There was always politics, people yeah. chatting behind your back. And I really wasn't paid enough or earning enough money to tolerate the amount of um, really some nasty vitriol that right. was said. And and so... What kind of stuff I, were, you, were you getting? Uh, just uh, just rumours of various women. And it was really trivial, petty stuff. Mm. And there was no substance behind it. But the fact is, is that there was a lot of bitching and backbiting and so and politics with music and gigs and it kind of always happened but i think for me i ended up hating the music industry um even with the production stuff the, they just the remix stuff i walked away from it because they wanted the same tunes and it got so boring for me i wanted i'm a very creative person and i wanted to experiment with live i had a live music album idea with live musicians making house and that was snubbed and i, I just i had enough of the whole thing and then my friend being stabbed was just like the last straw so i walked away from it said they could shove it now i'll always love djing but the music industry in and of itself i i i i do not miss it at all and i will never go back to it because I, you know, a lot of the people were just assholes i'm, I'm gonna be honest yeah. do you know what i mean and they were up themselves um so so what did you go on to do? What did you do when you quit? I mean, because, I mean, all right, you say you weren't paid enough to put up with the shit, but you were paid. What do you then go and do when you just uh, leave um, an industry? I, I, at that time, I wanted to get into youth work, and then I, I wanted to get into some property stuff. And, and um, I met my um, future wife, or my now wife at that time, and I went for a period where nothing was really working, no matter what I did. And then, obviously, you, you've probably heard the actual story, um, you know, my wife was having a, a, in an, a, some kind of abusive relationship. I had an altercation with her ex-partner. He then um, called the police, or, or the police were called. He then gave a statement against me. I ended up getting charged with ABH. Um, and, I, and I was working as a youth worker. I just started shortly, or shortly after that time, I started doing youth work, um, a company called Spark to Life, and I was with them for five years um and um i um but during that time though obviously i've said i was charged and then the case all went up to woolwich crown court in in um may of 2014 and as you've heard the, the story um, i ended up representing myself in um, the crown court because the barrister that i had instructed for my trial um trial overrun this is something that happens all the time and i am guilty of such things myself. But at the time I was just, I had enough of the legal system. I'd already sacked one firm of solicitors because they were all telling me that I'm guilty. And I'm like, look, I've not touched the guy. I've not him. And so I don't understand how they could make this charge out of uh, assault occasioning a actual bodily harm. Mm. So I went through the first trial, did everything myself. Um, um, and I went before the judge in Woolwich Crown Court on the first day i said look i'm going to represent myself now the, the judge who shares the same surname as me judge robinson so look do you really want to think about this because it was a, an alternative barrister sent and um i mean representing yourself never it, it doesn't strike me as the uh, as the, i mean it worked in your case but it doesn't strike me as the most sensible option there is a saying at the bar where they say only a fool would be one's own counsel. But um, <laughs> I guess, I guess you know, people have called me a fool in the past and you I always rise out of the top. the tread. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> people laughed at me when I said I was going to DJ, you know, and then I was on BBC One Extra, so what can I say? Uh, but in terms of this, you know, um, the judge said, right, I'll give you all the time I, you need and I'll fix a trial date. 
in the future after lunch. She came back after lunch and said, I've had a thought, think, thought about this and um, we're going to start now and I'm swearing in the jury now and you've got till tomorrow morning to read your case bundle with all the evidence against you now. Back then, we, 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 in, the, in the criminal justice system now, just to explain, we, we're all digitals. So all of our bundles... I mean, you've seen the old TV shows of Kavanaugh or whatever with barristers carrying in big lever arch bundles of files. Those days are over. We've got everything on our laptop. Back then, we um, um, had but that they had bundles. So I was given these two bundles, and if you give me that case now, I could prepare for that same case against me in an hour. But back then, it took me the whole night, um, and I, obviously, I didn't really know the law, but I did it. Um, cross-examined the um, complainant, shall we say. His name will remain, he will, he will remain nameless. Um, and um, I did a good job. I, I, you know, I brought up his past convictions, etc. I took him apart, understand. He couldn't believe it. Uh, but And the judge told him off a few times because he was complaining about the question. And he said, listen here, like, if a, if a barrister was here, they would ask you the same question. So you will answer the questions. Fantastic. And then at the end of the first day of trial, and um, I'm, I'm finishing with him, the prosecutor, a man who uh, is sadly no longer with us, a man I will never forget, Mr. David Jenkins, who sadly passed away after a short illness a couple of years ago. He took off his wig and he went to place it on my head and said, you need to do this for a living. And that was the wow. first time someone placed a thought in, his, in my head. Now, this was an upper middle class um, white male um, from Hampshire, nearly 70 years old. Me and him would never ever meet in normal circumstances of life and during my trial he actually helped me prepare my case against him he took me aside we discussed all my life his life he told me how he got into law his dad was a barrister his granddad was a barrister um they've always done it um he played rugby went to private school and i told him about my measly um hard life and and i support arsenal which is definitely signs of a hard life at the moment but um yeah, he, he he was amazing, and and we got on so well. And he was a, honestly, he was a true gentleman. Um, I just wish he'd be alive now to see the progress I've made. So that that saddens me. But got be, I'm, I'm sure he'd be inc- incredibly proud. Can you remember the feeling when they came back with the not guilty? Oh, well, before that, I, I got a hung jury the first time. They couldn't make up their minds whether I hit the complainant or not. So the next time I had to go through it all again, I had a breakdown. I mean, I have, I'll be honest, I've had some mental health issues um, f- f- throughout my, um, f- for many years, off, off and on, and that kind of exasperated it. I had to go into counselling. And then, again, I've had some drug and drink issues, and I, I, I hit the bottle. I started taking some Class A drugs, and it was it really got the better of me. The stress... And pressure, I mean, it severely impacted my marriage for those few months. But I picked up myself, dusted off myself, and um, this time instructed an expert to, to, for, for evidence because this guy was accusing me of hitting him with a hammer where there was no, um, you know, I didn't, this just simply didn't happen. We requested his blood um, analysis and DNA. He refused to provide it, but the expert couldn't form a report. I got the expert to attend court. And then um, that kind of helped swing it is that if this guy is telling the truth, why wouldn't he provide samples? And obviously there was meant to be, it was, it was meant to, it was outside the school, but yet there was no witnesses. So everything he said kind of fell apart. And this time in court, I, and funny, the, the kind of 
the future where I was going happened again. So a barrister was at the back of the court and kept on walking in. She, a, a black woman, um, such as the influence I have in my life, if you remember back to the probation officer, it's from 1991. Now, her name's Ann Taylor. Now, she was also a church minister. And so I'm a man of, of faith. I, I, you know, I, I'm a believer. I go to church and... What happened? She was praying for me at the back of the court. And as a church minister, she was all lifting her hands and and, and, and praying. And she, just before the verdict, um, when the jury was discharged, she took, we went out to the canteen and I was there because I had my therapist was with me at the time. And so the woman, she started praying over me. And she said, you know what? This case is never about you. This is about you, your career. And you've had to go through this to, to take a different direction in your life. And you have to be refined through the fire. And you need you. I've 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 never seen someone so good. And and you're better than some of them that are, that have pupillage, which is a form of barrister training. And so, she put planted a further seed in my head. And now it's funny. This same woman, Anteo, um, we're still friends, and she actually joined my barrister's chambers um, December last year All as right. a senior barrister. So how life works out is is amazing. But I left the canteen um, and um, everything they said was in one ear and out the other because I'm just thinking I'm going to go chow. So I've got my Bible in my hand. I'm outside court number 10, Woolwich Crown Court uh, in November of 2014. And then I've heard my name come over the Tanai. All parties in the case of Robinson come into court 10. I've gone in and I've met the actual, um, the usher. Now, his face, he, compared to the first trial where the, the, the ushers and the clerks were really friendly to me, this guy was like, look, really miserable through the whole trial. But the first time in the trial, he actually smart. He put on a wry smile, and so he said, "Verdict." And then I saw the judge come in. She started ripping up stuff behind her her, her um, bench, and then jury came in, and then they asked them. Um, foreman of the jury, how do you define the defendant guilty or not guilty? And there's only two words that you want to hear not guilty and my god my papers went into the air um and uh it was one of the most emotional moments i've ever experienced in my life i i have to say and i've, I've had many after that i um the, the resting officer who's starting to be really nice to me said look um the guy that represented you in the police station was an accredited police station rep. They're not qualified solicitors. And, and so she applied the next seed in my head. So I thought I could do that. And then at the new solicitors firm, which was doing all the litigation stuff behind the scenes, um, I spoke to them and then they agreed to take me on as a probationary police station rep. So imagine I've getting taken on by the firm that was representing me in my own trial. <laughs> and so from there, um, they said I need this qualification called Silex um, Advanced Criminal Litigation Level 3. I went to see about that um, because it was a professional course and I just found out, I just got diagnosed with dyspraxia. And I always thought I had dyslexia, but I, it's dyspraxia, which is Developmental Coordination Disorder, where basically um, there's, look, there's stereotypes about black people where we can dance and we're good at sport, especially contact sport. I'm the only black person I know 
that, that can't dance to save my life. I'll have Michael Jackson turn in his grave. And, you know, if, if I kick a football, it's likely to go through next door neighbor's window. So that's just me. How can but you DJ then so well? I, I hear that, but then I'm told that I'm, I look like when I'm dancing, when I'm DJing, I look like I'm listening to something entirely different. And actually, I was, because they have a tune. But there you go. But nonetheless... So how, how much did you did you look back then when you got diagnosed for dyspraxia and realised that actually a lot of your previous issues or problems that you'd had in 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 younger life might have been down to that? Yep, exactly all of it. Everything suddenly made sense, and so from there I got the support I need. I got a study skills provider. I got a, a MacBook given to me for a disabled student allowance. I got all these grants and I did my, I started, I enrolled to do a degree, which people recommended me do. Now this is, I was a man, I have no GCSEs. I have no A-levels and I took the ultimate plunge and did a law degree at 40 years old. Amazing. And, 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 and I did a test before I, I, I got enrolled at Birkbeck and they, they said, you've done so well, we'll offer you a place over the phone. And this is love. Whatever reason, I might not be able to dance. I might not, but I can't sing. <laughs> and um, and I and I and um, you know, you know, I can't. I'm not good at sport. But for whatever reason, I, I have a natural aptitude towards law. I don't understand it. I don't know where it comes from. <laughs> but 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 with law and advocacy, I just get it. I, I I don't I don't even question it no more. It's just a gift I have. And I got. You, you, you qualified. You qualified as this last June, and then you were called to the bar to be a barrister mm. Um, mm. on the thirtieth of November. Is that really quick? I mean, it's, I, mean yeah. I, I don't know anything about the, uh, the, the 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 barrister's profession, but that that strikes me as quite quick. So the whole thing was mad. So I graduated. I ended up graduating with a high two, and I missed out by a first by about. 0.8% and and um, I think maybe I got lazy because I got a training contract offer in um, 2017 because I used to work with a youth organisation and one of the youth had a, a court case and asked me to drop drop some documents to solicitors so I went to the solicitors firm in Stratford started sharing the story that I share with you they were so impressed they took me out to dinner offered me a training contract and even I wanted to be a barrister you can cross qualify so I started with them before I even finished my um, finals in uni, as such as the faith and confidence they had in me that I'd passed them, finished that, and then I finished my training contract with them in the end of 2019. I did my, what we call it, a legal practice course, which is um, something you have, that solicitors do. It's changing now um, to solicitors qualifying exams, but back then you had to do the LPC, and I did that part-term time when I did my training contract. I left my training contract early because I'd really, I weren't really feeling the solicitor work. I ain't even going to lie. It's a good profession, but it's not for me. I'm I'm a court guy. And so I left that. Then I carried on doing freelance police station work. So I was qualified to do police station stuff because you have to be, it's the police station accreditation. And so I did that. And then I got all, and I was working freelance. Unfortunately, I met connections and they, they put me on a WhatsApp groups where we share police station jobs because a lot of the solicitors employed don't want to go out at night. So we did. And so I got all those work jobs and then lockdown happened. I kept on going out through when a lot of staff were furloughed. And then I started getting really serious cases like murders and rapes in the police stations. Then I finally qualified as a solicitor in June um, the first last year. And um, all the work from the police stations followed me into the courts. I started working for the solicitors in court. Within two weeks of doing those cases um, as as a freelance solicitor, the actual um, I started doing trials in the magistrates' courts, which I still do now. But then 
I thought, let me transfer to the bar. And I did another qualification called higher rights of audience, which it does enable solicitors to have the higher rights of audience and the same rights of audience as, as a barrister. But what I found, barristers still get better um, court work and we get a more interesting variety of work. So I transferred, I put my transfer application and um, the two of my best instruction solicitors wrote references for me and I met my chambers who I gate crashed there. They had a 15-year anniversary party um, in in 2019. And um, Sean Wallace off the chase is a member of Chambers, so I, I went around and schmoozed all of, of those guys and I got talking to the clerks, just told them my story. They invited <laughs> me out to lunch, the clerks. And then fortunately, where I knew them, I got offered a full tenancy because I'd done, I'd racked up over a hundred court cases when I applied. Now, usually as a barrister, you have to do some kind of training called the bar course than the pupillage. Now, what my chambers said is because I've done, I've done more cases, bearing in mind it was lockdown, proper lockdown and furlough. I'd racked up more court appearances than um, a second six people and a second six people is coming towards the end of their training. So I had more court experience wow. and advocate, advocacy is what barristers do. And so because of that, they all wrote references to the bar. I made my application and the, the bar standards board approved me to, to qualify as a bar, to be called to the bar. And they gave me a total exemption from any bar um, course, and uh, which was you had to do the bar transfer test as a solicitor and also any, um, any pupillage. And I got a total exemption, which is because I'd only just been qualified as a solicitor, this is unheard of. And so, <laughs> and so, um, you know, I've, I really blew the door and I say, I'm, I, I believe I'm meant to be, I, I believe it was God plan. God's plan for my life because every single door opened with law. I've never had no blockages. Anything I've wanted to do, the doors have been opened. I, and all I'd say is if the music industry was like this, I'd still probably be a DJ. Like my, <laughs> like my diary since being a barrister is completely full. My clerks are doing it. The they couldn't do more if they tried. And, even for being someone so newly qualified, I did, um, and I only remember, I've only just qualified as a barrister, it was the 30th of June I was called. I did my first Crown Court trial the, the other day. I'm, st- I'm, doing a, I'm starting my next Crown Court trial on Monday. Now, these things don't happen. There's, there's juniors who have done the bar course the proper way, and they're two, three years in, and they've yet to do a Crown Court trial. Wow. I, 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 I've done two. How do, you, I how do you feel about that? I mean, what a remarkable achievement. It's meant to be. So I'm, I'm, I guess. How, I'm do you, to do how do you feel about it, though? I mean, you must be incredibly proud of yourself. I am, but I'll say that with the caveat that I think this journey is bigger than me. Like, there's, it's not even about my, um, money, Tom. Do you know what I mean? I, I do this because it's. I, I, I don't know. Would I say sense of justice? No, because I've never wanted to be a lawyer. I never watched those shows or Rumpel of the Bailey or Crown Court. I had no desire to even to get into further education. But I feel it's just being able to help people and vulnerable people, people with mental health issues, being able to be that guy that can honestly make a difference and stand up for someone, that, uh, it really means a lot to me. I, and I, I, I love the job. But I think, you know, it's the best job in the world. It doesn't even feel like work. That's amazing so, to get a job like that. I suppose in a way, a bit like DJing, mm, it doesn't necessarily mm, feel like work because you thoroughly, you know, you're loving it. I loved but, it. Uh, being a barrister, it's notoriously a role for those from privileged backgrounds. So how do you feel to be a very rare barrister with no GCSEs, working class, black, uh, normal? Um, all right, so 
normal um I, I, look, I, I meet a lot of those guys and i really don't really care i'm not intimidated by anyone and of i'm even i'm starting out um i'm i'm confident to, to be around these these people and you know a lot of these people are just they're really nice people do you know what i mean i think it's just by dint of your birth why these opportunities are afforded to certain people, but I, I'm not in. I'm not. I'm not phased by it at all. In terms of the, the black point that you address, there are quite a number of black Asian barristers, and what you find is that there are what and the narrative. But they're generally the, not working class, though. Exactly, the narrative is that if you're black, you're you're meant to be working class or whatever. There's loads of middle class black and Asian people that went to Oxbridge, mm. you know, that their parents are doctors or surgeons, the parents are already barristers or high court judges, and they've got the same opportunities as any middle class w- w- person. And this, this, this diversity thing that the bar's doing, it is annoying because the real issue is it's, you need to reach out to the working class. If you reach out to the working class people who've gone to university, but just not Oxford and Cambridge, you will get the pool of racial diversity that you, mm-hmm. you see but until you do that you're not going to get that having to me having someone and also, and also diversity of life experiences as well isn't it because it's not just about uh, your working class background or your uh, you know your ethnicity it's about what you bring from your life and 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 if you just get oxbridge people you don't really get a particularly diverse range of lives do you no, they don't, they don't, and they need to realise that. So again, if they they reach out to a more diverse pool and 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 do it down um, class background rather than the racial grounds, because again, the racial grounds you will still capture the, the um, people that maybe are black or Asian, but they've still had that privileged background because their parents had the money. You know, there's there's wealthy people from. Um, Ghana or Nigeria or, or India who send their kids to British law school to be barristers mm. where they're multi-millionaires in yeah. their own country or they're billionaires. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, well, so, so what in, in your eyes makes you, Mark, a particularly good barrister compared to your peers? Um, I mean, I don't compare. We're all different and we're all, it's very, um, it's a unified profession. I, I, you know, I just try to do my best when I go to court. Um, I try to fight for the clients. Um, you know, try to look for interesting legal argument um, and and present a good case and and hopefully try to achieve the best result. Unfortunately, in this game, you you often your clients do seem get convicted or uh, more than you would like to get them acquitted, but then it's trying to achieve the best result. Well, I mean, but, but the, have... the CPS only put up cases that have got a higher than 50% chance of being, uh, you know, whatever, it's 50%, but, you know, it's, it's an overwhelming uh, chance of conviction. They don't put them up. So you are automatically, if you're defending yep. someone on a charge, you are fighting a often a losing battle so uh, that's not really your fault is it you are but um i mean if you can spare someone from going to prison or you know it, it, it's a good thing i mean i've prosecuted a couple of cases as well as a barrister that, that that's expected of you at the criminal bar you you do you often are encouraged to try a bit of both and i found it was driving matters and some dv matters but I, I found it interesting on the other side of the fence even though defense is in my heart so right. but i'd say that um Again, I d- you just got to try your best at the end of the day. Know your brief is the, the main thing I'd say. <laughs> and, and does your performing background help either in speaking to the judges or probably more, I would have thought, to the juries? Definitely. Um, again, it's 
advocacy is an art form, just like um, DJing is an art form, MCing is an art form, advocacy is an art form, and that, that's the way I view it. And so everything is a performance. And so depending on if the case wants it, especially jury trials, you, you have to be... Uh, I, I, you, there's an air of drama. And I think the more you have to command the presence of the court, and I think an air of flamboyancy really helps as well. Uh, and what about the way that you speak to them? Um, so I think I'm, I speak, I try to speak more of my P's and Q's. Like, I can't be like, all right, bruv, what's going on, fam? And, <laughs> well, no, like, quite. Like, like, so, <laughs> so, so you, you speak, you, you speak in, it's, it's court speak, but I don't over-egg it. I'm not, you know, every minute, well, one may say this and one say that, but you you really have to look for the salient points in what you're delivering your closing speeches. But again, a lot of the work is done with the actual legal argument away from the jury about evidential kind of stuff about what evidence is going to be even put before the jury. So that's, that's where most of your work goes in. I think that probably one criticism of the legal system is that it is so opaque in that basically it's really it's it's sort of made deliberately hard to understand it and 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 unfortunately that doesn't come across very well to juries who are just normal people so that's what that's why I sort of wonder about how you address uh. them and if you, and if you avoid the um the getting into those sort of convoluted legal bits and sort of break it down and make it more understandable to normal people, uh, then you're more likely to get a, a, a win. And I wonder whether that's your background of coming from a radio presenter who speaks for a living, coming from a performing point of view, and from a normal background where you speak normally rather than in this sort of hoity-toity way that has just done for the last several hundred years in the legal system has stands you out and makes you more successful. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I avoid the legalese, I, um, which is all that Latin kind of stuff that, and, um, you know, multiple syllable words. I, I just keep it normal, plain English. And I mean, the courts do encourage you to speak like that. There are some barristers that think that saying certain phrases or certain words and then qualifying it makes them look all intelligent. And I, I don't go for that. I mean, I've seen some barristers recite Shakespeare in a closing speech. and <laughs> it, 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 it ain't the one. Juries famously love Shakespeare. Oh, <laughs> I, I, listen, if, you, if, you, if anyone ever sees me in a jury trial, honestly, I'm down to earth. I deal with my clients down to earth and you will never get that kind of thing. Me speak properly, but simple is more effective. And, and that's my kind of delivery. Well, do your, do your clients know about your history? And does that, in a way, often perhaps make them trust you more and therefore they feel more able to share some of the things that are going to be very important when it comes to putting together a defence? Uh, sometimes. Um, it, dep- it, it depends. Sometimes I'll share, sometimes I won't. Not every situation is appropriate. They've got, sometimes they've got enough stress on their head uh, that um, to worry about. But because they see how I am, and I talk, you see how I'm, I talk on the street with my friends, like, you know, like very much colloquial, like you're right, mate. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm just an Eastern black geezer that supports Arsenal. And I'm very much down to earth with them. And that alone makes them feel comfortable. I mean, a lot of the time I've had clients fix, say, you sound like the man them. And so that makes me laugh as well, especially when I'm in a wig and gown. They're like, we, don't, we didn't expect you to sound like that. And so, but that really puts them at ease. So that's yeah. what I need to do. Look, I'll just be myself. I'm not, I'm not here to fake it. And I think the beauty of this profession for me, I think it's the first time in my life I've actually been myself. I've not 
you know, DJ, and I was always heavily influenced, whether it was the Randalls or the Brooklyn's, the Carl Tuffenough Browns in Garage, whoever it was, you're always influenced by another DJ. This time, I'm not influenced by no one else apart from Mark Robinson. Is that because There's, there aren't really many influences for your, for people like you in this no, industry? No, there are. A lot of barristers would aspire to their pupil masters. I never had a pupilage. I got exempted. So they would aspire to other QCs or they'd watch yeah. TV or they people, judges or people they read about like Lord Denning or there's um, Baroness Hell or, you know, the Supreme Court judges. I'm not influenced by no one. I've only got myself to go by and for that I, I'm, I'm I think I'm at a point in my life I'm I'm at the most at one with myself um, right. you know I'm not trying to be anything I'm not I'm the answer this is my natural me and and that's why I love the job so much yeah indeed and you're also mentor as well in like a secondary school in Lewisham and do, do you feel like you're an inspiration to others in the way that you've had inspirations from say for instance your probation officers and that sort of thing um yes i i do uh, and i think i have a story to be told but the story is bigger than me but i just hope to inspire kids of all backgrounds that if there's something you really want to do don't let no one ever tell you that it can't be done do, do you know what i mean it's um whether you want to be law whether you want to be a doctor a pilot or you know police officer or even a dj whatever it is um you know, don't be deterred from doing it. Although I do, when when kids are telling me they want to produce or go into rapping uh, or they or even sports, I, I say that with an air of caution. Get your education because, again, you know, I've I've made criticisms of the music industry and referred to people uh, or, or the people within the profession a certain way, and that comes from what I've seen is that they bring in talent. And young people, um, especially, and then they spit, they, they bring you in and they, they chew you up and they spit you out. And that's left a lot of people with mental health issues out the other side. Not, not myself, but, um, other people. And I don't like the way, and it's, I guess it's the same in sport as well. And so I'd say things like a background in law, once I've got my degree, it's something that you can never, ever take away from me. And again, with the bar, this is not going to done. Like I can be practicing until the, they'll have to roll me out of court in a wheelchair as far as I'm concerned. Well, I mean, that was what bringing me on to my, my, my next, uh, and, and coming to a closing question is what's next for Mark Robinson, uh, barrister. Are you going to be, you know, you're going to aim to become QC or are you going to maybe one day be a judge? What, what's, uh, what's your hopes and dreams? The funny thing is like being a silk, I mean, it wouldn't be a QC, it would be, uh, unless the Queen survives to like 120 <laughs> years, and, and, you know, many more years to Her Majesty. But um, the, the fact okay, is... Okay, it's, okay, it's okay, case okay, case, okay, uh, okay. It, it, it takes about 15, 20 years, whereas right. a judge, you can apply for quite earlier into your career, like 10 years. In, um, um, it's not really on my radar. For now, I, I just want to be the best advocate I want to be, I'm still quite new to this. I've been very lucky to be propelled so far into the deep end so quickly. There's still an awful lot to learn. And so I really want to master the, all the intricacies of advocacy and be the best um, barrister that I can be. And then I'll start worrying about moving forward. But for now, I love it. I love doing trials. I, I much far prefer the Crown Court stuff. And yeah. once this um, social distancing lark stops and they can ha resume even more jury trials, I, I have no doubt that I'll be there most of the time. And so that's my focus is just focusing 
what I've been blessed with. And then, you know, if I can help people out on the way, carry on doing some mentoring, I'd like to sit on some youth justice panels. I think that's the next step to shape policy regarding offences, especially with young people and some of this youth violence and knife crime stuff. But beyond that, I'm I'm just happy and I'm happily married. Um, I'm happy I'm, and I'm just happy with life at the moment. Lovely. I'm just it's happy. Great. It's great to hear, mate. And, and, and without you- the pills... Well, good for you. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll come and ask you if you're still into raves in, in a second. But if you could send out a message to anyone who's perhaps having a tough time in life, because a, a heck of a lot of people are right now, or perhaps they're not pursuing a dream because it somehow seems unattainable, what would it be? Pursue your dreams and never give up. There's always a way. There's always a chance of success. The, the biggest worst thing is listening to people telling inhibiting you because of their own um, insecurities or their own lack of confidence in themselves if you believe in something uh, and believe in yourself go ahead and do it you only live once uh, and before we end i appreciate you've hung up the pills but are you still into rave music we're going to be are we going to see you on the dance floor perhaps uh, of one of these uh, you know one of the sort of jungle or hardcore reunions when uh, would they inevitably come back after all this social distancing I mean, I'm, you know, as I said to you, I'm a man of faith. I don't really go out as, as much as I, I did. However, I wouldn't mind going to a festival. I, I, I've really been into Bookham. I mean, I've got a home gym and I bang on the Bookham um, loud through, through Mixcloud. And, um, I, I, I said to my wife that we, I would really like to just go to a festival and hear LTJ ltj book and play when he comes. i understand he lives in russia at the moment but well, when he comes he's, back, he's doing a tour mate in uh with ronnie size in yeah. november well we'll see i mean i've got tickets for it but it's uh there's yeah. like you know kentish town yeah. forum or whatever oh. whether that will happen in november we shall mm. see but, but um, yeah but um, that's that's on my radar is okay. is, is um, here in bookham so if anyone's into bookham that's where you'll see me will you bring your wig no. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Mark, thank you for joining us uh, for this episode. Uh, I hope that everyone's enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed talking to you because, you know what, as I said at the, at the start, and I wasn't kidding, it's one of the most fantastic and amazing stories. And to be honest, I think you know that, which is why you keep telling everybody your story all the way through. And it's serving you rather well, Mark, so keep it going, won't you? <laughs> thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure, Tom. You're a star, mate, and uh, stay in touch. And uh, we, we're going to follow your career with great interest because I think you're going to go on to, uh, to, to 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 great things. So uh, congratulations, mate, and and thank you again. I'll see you in court. <laughs> Actually, if we get into any trouble, I know who I'm coming to. Ah. It's, it's DJ Footloose. Well, that's it from another episode of Raw. We hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. We're now an all-video platform, so if you're listening on audio, please do check out our YouTube page for this episode filmed, plus loads more besides. And you can also find us on Facebook, Insta, and Twitter. Just search for Raw, the 90s rave podcast. Plus, if you can spare just a few quid to help us continue making more great 90s rave content and hopefully keeping a smile on your face at a difficult time, you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s. Rave podcast. All donations will be ploughed back into the podcast, including expenses to get around the country, interviewing some of your rave favourites, and also improving our equipment. It's about a pressure, it's about a roar.